Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Let's start with just verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren. Three whole chapters are dedicated to the opposition that Nehemiah faced in building this wall. Chapter 4, we saw, ended in a great victory. Nehemiah dealt with the attacks from without and the discouragement from within. The enemy was gathering from every side, from the north and the south, the east and the west, gathering around Jerusalem to prevent them from building the walls because they hated God's people. They hated God and what Jerusalem stands for. But with Nehemiah's leadership and God's involvement in Nehemiah's life and leading him, giving him the wisdom and discernment and administration skills, defeats those attacks and overcomes and continues to work. And the people continue to put their hand to the plow. They actually worked with a sword in one hand and a plow in the other, building the wall. Every single one of them had their sword by their side because they knew the enemy's threats were real and can come at any moment at the night. So there was guards stationed at the night and during the day, and they continued to build. But as we look at chapter 5, there's actually two things missing in this chapter. If you read the whole thing in context, there's no record of them working in chapter 5. And the second thing is there's no enemy mentioned in chapter 5. You might be thinking, why is that significant? Why does that even matter? It actually is highly significant. Warren Wiersbe said, as long as, the, as long as God's people sin against one another, the enemy can rest. The enemy is not mentioned here because there was sin in the camp. And because there was sin in the camp, and people were at odds with one another. The work actually stopped. The work of the Lord comes to a screeching halt here because the Jewish brethren did not have each other's best interests in mind. And see, what the enemy tried to do st to stop the work of God, the people of God did it to themselves and caused the work to stop. Look at verse 1. It says, there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives. This great outcry or this distress is similar to that of Egypt when they were delivered out of bondage. And God heard the oppression and he saw the things that his people were going through. And he appeared to Moses and he goes, I have heard their cries. I have seen their prayers. And here the people are crying out once again. But what are they crying out against? Look, it says, against their Jewish brethren. The word brethren is mentioned four times here, and a fifth time for the word brother. That's why I titled this message, A Family Matter. There was a family problem within the walls. There was strife among God's people. One group was fighting against another group. Mark chapter 3, verse 25 says, If a house is divided, if a house is divided against itself, 
that house cannot stand. That means if they are not united, they will not be able to stand against the enemy's schemes. And that's why the enemy can sit back and do nothing, because the people of God were divided. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and 19 says, Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. The last thing mentioned, it says, and one who sows discord among the brethren. The one person that talks gossips about another believer in the body of Christ. The one's like, hey, did you hear she did this? Or he did that? When they spread rumors, that is something God can not stand and he will not tolerate. He absolutely hates it. He absolutely hates it. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. James actually asks, where do wars come from? He says, it comes from among you guys. And it comes from your own evil desires. And that's what we see come from this text here. We see the evil desires of the Jewish people and against their fellow Israelites. See, God cares how the Jews treated the other fellow Jews. And God cares about how we treat other Christians. He cares about how you junior hires treat other junior hires in this room. He cares about how the high schoolers treat high schoolers, how the high schoolers treat junior hires and vice versa. He cares about how believers treat other believers. Like I said, we're a family. And that's why I didn't want you guys to sit on that side because we should be comfortable with one another. We should be together because we're going to be spending eternity with the Lord and with each other. Now in verses 2 through 5, and even throughout this passage, I'm actually going to read a couple of different translations to help make sense of it better, okay? So follow along with me. In verse 2, I'm going to read it from the NIV translation. It says, Some were saying, We and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Verse 3. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. So there was a famine during that time. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, and we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. The reason there's division among God's people was because of selfishness and greed. You can summarize verses 1 through 13 with those two words, selfishness and greed. Selfishness will cause division in a church. It'll cause division in a family. It'll cause division on a team. Think about it. For those that play a sport, no one likes the person that hogs the ball all the time, right? Everyone can't stand that person. 
That person's selfish because they want all the glory, they want all the attention, and they are not in it for the team. And going further, they're actually restraining the team. See, the Jewish, the Jews were robbing their own people. Jews robbing Jews. The rich Jews were taking advantage of the poor Jews. That still takes place to this day. The, the rich always take advantage of the poor in society at times. This was injustice. It was both a financial issue, but a spiritual problem as well. Because check us out, I love God. God and his foreknowledge, him seeing the future, he knows human heart. He wrote this down three times in the law, in Exodus, Leviticus, and in Deuteronomy. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write down Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. I read that portion on my own, and it was so insightful. Because basically God knew human behavior, and he says, I already know the Jews are going to try to take advantage of one another, so I'm going to put this down in my law so they will not do it. And he goes, I don't want you guys to charge interest when you borrow money. That way they have to pay more. He goes, no, I don't want any of that. And that's what they were complaining about, where these rich Jews were lending out money, like I would give money to Nick here, and then by the time he would pay me back, if he didn't pay me back within a month, it would go up like 10%, and then 20%, and 30%. And they were charging interest, and they couldn't pay it back. They were even sold, selling some of their kids into slavery. And that was something that you would do back in that day, is if you couldn't pay the debt, can you imagine if mom and dad said, listen, Isaac, we can't pay for our house, so you're gonna go into slavery. That, they would do that at times. But check this out, every seven years, the Jews were supposed to cancel those debts. They were supposed to let those debts go free and those sons and daughters to go back to their parents because it, they weren't supposed to heap and pile it back on and on and on and on because God knew human nature. And so people were complaining about this money, the interest, the famine. They needed food because all their husbands were working on the wall and then they weren't tending the fields. They had to pay this tax as well. This was a massive problem, an issue going on. How did Nehemiah respond? What did Nehemiah do? Look at verse 6 with me. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Nehemiah became very angry. That word angry means to burn, to be like fueled, furious. There was steam coming out his ears. He was heated because of this injustice. Now, is it wrong to be angry? What do you guys think? It depends. It depends. Depends on what? So maybe it depends what the what you're angry at, right? And what's the motive behind your anger? You're correct. So when is anger a bad thing? 
Give me some examples when anger is a bad issue going on. Blake. You mess up something and you take your anger out of you. Ooh, I would do that with my little brother. <laughs> I would mess up on something, get frustrated, and you would take out that anger on somebody else. True. Bitterness. Bitterness, true. Because anger can turn that bitterness, and then you're chewing on it over and over in your head, and this, this bitter root just keeps growing down further around your heart. When it gets out of hand. Now, what's out of hand? When's too much too much? When it starts to drive apart family. That's good. That's true. Any other times where anger is bad? So you're just raging. Actually, Jesus even said on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you are angry with somebody, it's as if you committed murder in your heart. Technically, guess what? You are all murderers. Trust me, I know, because all of us in this room have struggled with anger to some extent. Your little brother or sister was pushing your buttons. Your parents said something. We've all gotten to this anger. And then we looked at that other person and says, if we've commanded murder in our hearts, Jesus says. So you are all, we are all murderers in this room. We should change the name from Rudy Junior High to Murder Junior High. Actually, no, I'm just kidding. That'd be really weird. <laughs> Go ahead. Disrespect. Disrespect, true, yes. So those are some bad things or areas of anger that can turn bad. When is anger a good thing? Just like the Bible says righteous anger when you're mad because people are disrespecting the Bible. Or just like Jesus was mad when they defiled the temple. Okay, so having this righteous anger. Zach? You took your answer. Well, you get sometimes use it to your advantage. We're talking about good anger. <laughs> I don't think you can use anger to your advantage at times. Well, if like, you're trying to like, maybe like, break something, like construction maybe, or like, <laughs> trying to like, create a sport. In a sport? I don't know. When you get angry in a sport, it actually makes you probably play worse at times. So, anyways, um, uh, good anger is like when you have a reason to be angry. There's always a reason to be angry. I know, but like when it's like for something, I don't know. Angry for a good cause, yes. Angry for a good cause, but what is those good causes? To protect your family or something, like someone picking on your little brother or sister. Okay, to protect your family. That is true. Like, if all of a sudden someone was messing with your sibling, you'd be like, mm-mm, that's, like, that's where, like, the brass knuckles come out. Like, let's go. <laughs> like, and so, true, being protective of your family. I guess, like, the same thing as family, but, like, with friends. Like, so someone's, like, trying to hurt your friends. Trash-talking your friend or hurting your friend? True. I like that. Any other things? If you're taking notes, write this scripture down. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Paul says to the church of Ephesus, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. Now, how is that possible? How can we be angry and not sin? Don't you think that's like a tall order? That's something hard to ask for. 
Because I would say 99% of the time, our anger is fleshly. Would you guys agree? It has fleshly motives behind it. It's carnal. He says, be angry and do not sin. That is very tricky. I don't believe Nehemiah here was sinning. I believe Nehemiah's anger here was righteous. And I want to encourage you with something. God made us as human beings, emotional beings. He gave us emotions as a part of a life. And one of those emotions is anger. Check out this. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Nehemiah got angry with the enemy. He didn't get angry at Samballot and Tobiah who were planning attacks and threatening them. He didn't get angry at their opposition because he expected that from the world. You know who he's getting angry at? He's getting angry at the Jews, his fellow brothers and sisters. Nehemiah is angry and he is grieved because the Jews were hurting each other. He got angry at the injustice, the lack of love, and the lack of unity among God's people. What makes you angry? And are the things that make you angry, is it sinful anger or is it a righteous anger? See, I can relate to Nehemiah to some extent here. There's nothing that makes me more angry, more frustrated when we in the church can't get along. Nothing makes me more upset when junior hires and other junior hires are hurting one another or high schoolers are hurting high schoolers. That gets under my skin. You might not see it, but it bothers me. It bothers me because I think it bothers Jesus. And it bothered Nehemiah because it bothered God. This here reminds me of Jesus so much because Christ was angry at the religious Jewish leaders and not the sinners, actually. This story in Mark chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, Jesus is talking to the people, and there's this man with a withered hand, and he poses the religious Jew a question here. He says, then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill a life? I'm going to stop there for a moment. See, these Pharisees made so many rules that they added to God's commands about the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was made for man to rest because we need rest. Can I get an amen? I love, I love resting. There's, I love a good nap. And so God made man for the Sabbath, but they put so many rules and regulations on it and saying, oh yeah, you can't, like, if someone gets caught underneath a, the tire of your cart, yeah, you can't lift it up because that would be working. And so Jesus asks them a question. Is it okay to save a life on the Sabbath? Or are you just going to obey the rules and not do good? But notice it says they kept silent. And when he looked 
around at them with anger. He was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. I wonder what Jesus' face looked like in this moment. It says he looked, he scanned the room with this angry, righteous face. I bet you in that moment you could hear a pin drop because there was this tension. There was a holy anger. And it's interesting. I was reading this book called Lowly and Gen- or Gentle and Lowly. And in this one chapter, he highlights the emotions of Christ. Christ's emotions are sinless. You and I can't understand, we can't fathom what pure compassion is like. Because our compassion is tainted with sin. We can't understand what pure anger is like because our anger is tainted with sin. Jesus here has a pure anger. And he's angry at their hypocrisy. I want you to notice something because all of us in this room have mostly grown up in churches. He's not angry with sinners. He's angry with those church people who play church who know what the Bible says, but they don't live it out. The Pharisees knew the word of God, and they didn't live it out. Warren Wiersbe said, a person who lacks anger also lacks conviction and courage. Do you have anger? What kind of anger is it? Thankfully, God delivered me from my personal anger Growing up, I struggled with that, being like a middle child and having an older brother that knew how to just push my buttons and he was an antagonist. And for two years, I think I believed that I was adopted. My parents had no clue. And when they found out, they were heated and they disciplined my older brother and sister. Then I had my little brother who just did all sorts of annoying noises and I would beat up on him and different things. My mom, the one word she would use to describe me was like fuming. I was so angry all the time. But thankfully, God has delivered me from that. Does it get you angry and upset when you see injustice? And I'm not talking about the world's version of injustice. Does it bother you? Does it break your heart when you hear sad news? I think we hear so much bad news now. We're becoming numb to it. It's dangerous when we become numb to certain things and it doesn't provoke within us this brokenness, this frustration to do something about it. Nehemiah was upset here, more than upset, because he wanted to do something about this. Look at verse 7. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and I said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. 
I love verse 7. You should underline those first three words, after serious thought. Nehemiah did not act on his anger right away. He did not let his emotions dictate his behavior or his beliefs. He didn't let his emotions get the best of him. He was angry, then he stopped, he prayed, and he gave some serious thought about the issue. How long was that? I don't know about you guys, but I don't get over my anger really quickly when I was younger. There was one time I got angry so much at my family, I ran out the front door to run away, but I had no idea where to run, and so I actually ran around the backside and ran into my parents' room and hid underneath their bed. And all of a sudden, I could see their legs going everywhere. And they're like, hey, where's Josh? You guys go down the street, go that way, go that way. And I was like watching at this. I was like, ha, 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 that's right. I'm getting you back. Like, I was so like, oh, I was so angry. And then I fell asleep. <laughs> and, and then I woke up like a couple hours, maybe a couple hours later. I don't know how long it was. And I came out, and my anger was gone. We don't get over anger right away. And sometimes we even listen to angry music to keep us angry. Because we don't want to get out of it. We want to stay angry. We want, we want to stay upset. How long did it take for Nehemiah to cool off? Was it a day? Was it a whole evening? We don't know. It says he gave serious thought to this problem. Is our emotions getting the best of us? Are we pausing and slowing down? And praying, inviting God into the situation, inviting God into our thoughts and saying, Lord, help me to think biblically. Help me to think right about the situation. And then he says, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. Nehemiah handles this matter privately among the Jewish community when they accuse the nobles and the rulers of oppressing the people within the walls. I love this. I don't think matters should be handled corporately or publicly until those offenders have been addressed privately. Until all the sides and their opinions have been aired. This is biblical. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Moreover, if your brother, notice that word, brother, sins against you, you go tell him his fault between you and him alone. I'm going to stop there for a moment. It doesn't say, go gossip about that person. Do you know what this person did to me? Oh, invent that person. It says, if you have a fault between somebody, if they've wronged you, go handle it between that person. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear Take one or two more, that by the mouth are two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like the heathen and the tax collector. In other words, there's a process. This is called church discipline here. Did you know that amongst the church here, the staff ministers and Pastor David, there is an order even from the Bible on how we should handle matters within the church. If someone's sinning, we need to confront that person because if we let that sin continue, that sin affects everybody else. 
little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you let cancer continue in the body without treating it, it's going to infect the rest of the body. And that's the same thing with the body of Christ. We need to be getting before God on our hands and knees, before his word and saying, Lord, search my heart. Show me if there's any wicked way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Something else I want to point out about this verse. Notice there's not amount of times you're supposed to go to that person. If Jordan wronged me, maybe I might need to talk to Jordan a couple times in private first and hash it out. And then after a couple times maybe, then maybe bring somebody else in. Now, you don't bring that other person in like, hey, let's gang up on him. <laughs> like, that's not the goal. They're just there to witness and try to encourage. And then if they refuse that, you got to bring it to the church. And then he goes, sometimes you might need to kick somebody out of the church. Thankfully, I don't think I've had to do that in junior high yet. Maybe I have, and I forgot about it. But we've had to do that at this church and say, listen, you're not welcome back for the safety of other people. Because your protection matters to God. He cares about your, you physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And so we have to do that. It's what's best in the interest of the body and what the Lord's leading us to do. There are times where a leader, a coach, a teacher, or even a parent has to rebuke somebody. And I would say this, rebuking is never fun for the person rebuking and the person receiving the rebuke. It's not fun. It's uncomfortable. I don't like rebuking people. Oh, you're wrong. It's not fun. And it's not, being, it's not fun being the receiver. But this is what Paul told Timothy in his last epistle. He said, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convict, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. That long word, long-suffering, you have to suffer long at times at this. You might have to rebuke someone over and over. You might have to convince them. You might have to exhort them and say, hey, you got this. Let's go. Let's continue. Just like at Monday night at Lightfest, when all these little kids were about to give up squirting the boat, it's like, no, cheer them on. You got this. Let's keep going. They need to be exhorted. But there's a time for rebuking. And so Nehemiah brings in the nobles and the rulers, and he rebukes them. I like how the NLT translates this kind of last part of verse 7. He says, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money from you. Can you imagine if one of your relatives, an aunt or an uncle, your grandparents, you borrowed money from them, and all of a sudden they're hiking up the prices? You're just like, whoa, grandma, why'd you do that? <laughs> I thought I was your favorite grandchild. <laughs> and you start kind of like freaking out. That's not cool. Jesus said this in Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 through 20. You shall not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner someone who's not your brother, you may charge interest. But to your brother, you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. If you actually go back to Deuteronomy 15, Jesus, like 
the father is saying to the people, if you do this, I will bless you. God wants to bless the people. He's like, I want to bless you. If you do this, I will bless you. And you can take your blessings and bless other people. But they weren't following this. So they had to be rebuked. They had to be confronted. So Nehemiah calls a great assembly against them. He calls a public meeting. And this public meeting actually stopped the work. The people literally goes, everybody from the wall, come on. Get off the wall. He had to collect and round up everybody that was working on the wall. They're like, what's going on? And there was this big problem. He gathers them all together. Notice verse 8. I'm reading it from the NLT. It says, at the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have been, who have had, who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again? How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. In other words, he goes, we've been redeemed from exile. We've been redeemed from Babylon. And yet you now, after being redeemed and purchased and set free, are putting your brothers back into slavery and bondage? They kept silent and they found nothing to say. Verse 9, he says, Then what I said, what you are doing is not good. You should not walk, or should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations and of our enemy? Nehemiah further corrects them and goes, what you were doing is not right. It's not good. And that's what rebuking is for at times. We need someone to confront us and says, hey, this is wrong. And we need to stand firm on the truth of God's word. One commentator said, what good is it to build the walls if inside the walls the people were exploiting one another? Basically, he says, stop building the walls and fix the problem inside. Because if you're building these walls and yet there's issues in here, you need to handle the issues first. And that goes for us as a church. We can't invite people and evangelize and say, hey, you should come to our church when there's issues among us that need to be solved and need to be handled. If we're telling other people to repent and we haven't repented from our sins, we first need to repent. Peter says, let judgment begin at the house of God, then the world's. And they were disobeying the law of God here. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like the money lenders to him. You shall not charge him interest. This was a big deal to God. And then he says, should you not walk in the fear of God? See, the people didn't fear God, and therefore they were selfishly doing things. Are we fearing the Lord? Not being terrified of him. Because there's a harmful fear and there's a healthy fear. Do we have a healthy fear of God? Do we have a healthy respect for God? We have a healthy fear for fire. We have a healthy fear towards guns if you've ever shot a gun before. You respect that. Do we have a healthy fear of God? We need more of that today. And the NLT goes, in order to avoid being mocked by our enemies. When we are living hypocrisy 
and hypocrisy when we are living double lives and we say we're a Christian but we act a different way. We're actually bringing mockery to God's name. And when people make fun of Christianity because of us, that is not cool. Verse 10 in the NLT, it says, I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. In other words, he goes, I'm not part of this problem. I've been giving. He goes, we're going to stop this and put an end to this now. In verse 11, he says, restore now to them. Even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their horses, or their houses. Also, a hundredth of the money and grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. In verse 12, so they said, we will restore it and I will require nothing from them. We will do as you require, uh, require, require and nothing uh, from them. We will do as you have said. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. And look at verse 13. Then I shook off the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. I mean, so be it. And praise the Lord, and the people did according to the promise. In other words, Nehemiah did a visible action of a curse he's pronouncing on them. He goes, if you do not do this, may God curse you. He says, this matter should be taken seriously. Warren Wiersbe said, as long as as God's people sin against one another, the enemy can rest. But as soon as sin has been dealt with, the enemy must come at once to attack. When sin is dealt with, then the enemy is going to come and attack again. What sin does God want to deal with your life? Is it something personal? Or is it something that you or we have done against one another? God hates when we are divided. You know what he loves? He says, how pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity together. God has this massive smile on his face when we love one another. That's his heart's desire, is that we would love one another. John 13, 20, or 35 says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This should be the birthmark of all Christians is that we love one another. Now, this word love is the word agape. It's the supernatural love within us flowing out of our lives. It's something that we can't do on our own, that we have to invite God and say, God, would you help me? I don't have the ability to love. And that's something Pastor David has prayed. He saw that Marie, his wife, just has this genuine compassion, and he didn't have this type of love. And he's like, Lord, give me that love. Lord, give me that love. And he's been praying that prayer ever since then. Are we praying that for our lives? Saying, Lord, would you give me that capacity to love? Lord, expand my heart, soften my heart. May those things that frustrate and bother you and get you angry, may it bother me as well. 
I think we need to get angry at the things that God gets angry at. And I think we need to love those people that God loves. And we need to be submitted and surrendered and allow His Spirit to form and shape our lives and not the world around us. But what is the characteristic that is marking all of us? Is it love or is it hate? I'll leave you with this one last thought. 1 John chapter 3. It actually says, you can know the children of God and the children of the devil by this one thing. Those that are sons and daughters of God love other Christians. Those who are sons of the devil hate their own family members. And he used Cain as an example who murdered his own brother at the very beginning. God wants us to love. And may that be a genuine response from our heart as we step out of the way and let God have his way in and through us.